Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and uh, today I have with me Dr. James Anderson from Reformed Theological Seminary, and this is the second time coming on. Uh, you definitely want to check out our previous discussion where we talked about uh, the nature of transcendental arguments. So um, a lot of people have been um, expressing an appreciation of the content of this uh, channel, Revealed Apologetics, because we focus on different applications of presuppositionalism. And so that specific episode, we talked a lot about transcendental arguments. And as you know, that's very much related to uh, presuppositional methodology and argumentation. So you definitely want to avail yourself of, uh, of that episode. Also, if you're interested, um, Dr. Anderson, to my knowledge, has not engaged in a lot of formal debates and discussions. Maybe he has, and I don't know. But he had a really good discussion with the atheist YouTuber, Tom Jump, um, which I thought was a very good discussion. Um, and a nice uh, lesson in philosophy, <laughs> in my opinion, for, for Mr. Jump there. Um, I think that um, uh, Dr. Anderson made some great points. They didn't get uh, to the point of where Dr. Anderson wanted to get in his argument, but it was still very informative um, and I think very, very uh, useful if you take a look at that on YouTube. Um, just by way of really quick announcements, on July 16th, I'll be having uh, Dr. Frank Turek on uh, to talk about his book, Stealing from God. And of course, he's not presuppositional, but uh, that book is very presuppositional-ish. And so I do think that there's uh, a lot to glean from, from that book. And so hopefully uh, you guys will find that useful as well. And then on July 29th, we have uh, Greg Kokel coming on to talk about strategies and, and how to navigate discussions with unbelievers. So stay tuned for those things. If you have not subscribed yet to the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel, please do so and click that notification button uh, to um, get the updates on future uh, interviews that are coming up. All right. Well, without further ado, I'd like to welcome back uh, Dr. James Anderson. Uh, why don't you take a few seconds to uh, reintroduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Eli. Yeah, so, uh, James Anderson, I uh, am a professor of theology and philosophy at Reformed Theological Seminary in, in Charlotte, um, British uh, by birth, but uh, now American by uh, naturalization. So a uh, full-fledged American citizen now living in the United States for um, 11, uh, nearly 12 years now, okay. teaching apologetics, ethics, philosophical theology, a range of things uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary. Do, do your uh, British family members call you a traitor for taking the deep dive <laughs> across the pond? <laughs> they, they may think that, but they haven't told me that. <laughs> okay, very good. So when you when you have family get-togethers and celebrate Fourth of July, you can just bring you know your American yeah. shirt and your little flags, just rub yeah. it in. Well, this this year was the first July Fourth, where okay. all of our family could could really enthusiastically celebrate Independence Day. We'd had to sort of cross our fingers and hold them behind our backs previous years. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, well, uh, let's jump right in. Um, uh, the topic for today, we're covering the question. Is there really a big difference between a classical apologetics and presuppositional apologetics? And so um, this, this episode is not for the purpose of creating a methodological division. Um, there's already division. There are different methodologies, different theologies, and, and, and things like that. Um, and you guys have heard me express, um, I think, the importance of gleaning from people from throughout the apologetic spectrum. But I did want to expl uh, explore some of the main uh, differences within these methodological traditions. And so before we get into those differences, why don't you lay out for us, Dr. Anderson, uh, what is the classical approach and why is it called classical? And before you answer that, I want to point people to your lectures at Reformed Theological Seminary, the app 
you have an entire lecture where you go over uh, these issues in, in greater detail. So folks can definitely go over there. But uh, right now, why don't you lay out uh, the classical approach for us and why it's called classical? Sure. So the, the, the classical approach, which uh, sometimes been called the, the traditional approach, and certainly it's been associated with uh, the Thomistic tradition, uh, both uh, Roman Catholic and Protestant Thomists. But the, the classical approach, uh, according to its own advocates, is a, a two-stage approach to proving the Christian faith. And in the first stage, you argue for the existence of God. So you would offer uh, philosophical arguments, typically some version of the cosmological argument, maybe a design argument. Um, some classical apologists will use the ontological argument, although that's more controversial. But in stage one, you, you prove theism, some sort of um, relatively generic theism that there is a, a transcendent first cause of the universe, a designer, maybe with personal agency, depending on exactly how the argument goes. So that's stage one. And then stage two, you move into a more historical evidential mode of argumentation. And the, the fairly standard approach for the classical apologist is to argue for the historic re historical reliability, just the general reliability of, of the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, to argue that uh, on the basis of, of these historical documents that Jesus, uh, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, claimed to be divine, claimed to be the Messiah, and uh, he predicted his resurrection and rose from the dead, and there were eyewitnesses, and there's historical evidence for this resurrection, which confirms Jesus' claims to be the Son of God. And once you've made this historical argument for the resurrection and sort of a, a case for the deity of Christ on the back of that, yeah. um, you, you're done. You've, you've proven the Christian faith. You've proven the existence of God and you've proven that Christ was who he claimed to be and rose from the dead. And uh, and your work in apologetics has basically done that. That's what it takes to establish the, the, the essential tenets of the Christian faith. And um, there, there are obviously variations within the classical world. There are, there are some more strict Thomists like uh, the late Norman Geisler, like um, Richard Howe today would be a good example. And then you've got guys like uh, William Lane Craig, who are a little more independent minded, but still follow this basic two, two stage approach to proving the existence of God and then making a historical case for the resurrection. Mm. Well, when it's called classical, uh, because it's a more traditional methodology, who are some prominent figures um, other than Thomas Aquinas who follow along that, that classical tradition? Yeah, so um, obviously on the Catholic side of things, the, Aquinas is the major influence there, although with him it's very much focused on the, the arguments for theism rather than historical mm -hmm. arguments that you now get. Um, uh, um, Joseph Butler, a uh, Protestant uh, theologian and apologist is a good example of the classical approach. And today, as I say, um, uh, Norm Geisler, a very influential classical apologist, yeah. William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, um, Stephen Cowan. Um, some are, some would um, uh, describe themselves as reformed. Uh, R.C. Sproul, of course, should have mentioned R.C. Sproul, uh, identifies as a classical apologist, but reformed in his theology and then you have there are non-reformed classical apologists as well mm -hmm. like like William Lane Craig 
Uh, very good. You kind of answered my next question, which was to list uh, some uh, of the uh, classical apologists. So thank you very much for that. Um, and again, uh, anyone who is introduced to apologetics um, usually uh, is introduced to it through the classical approach. I mean, uh, the classical apologists today are, I think, in my estimation, more visible to the public eye. Um, and, and while it's true with regards to some presuppositionalists, it seems that when you go to the apologetic section in the bookstore, there's a lot of this uh, uh, classical uh, and evidential uh, sort of uh, uh, books that are there, uh, which again, I think are, are, are super helpful and useful uh, in their own right. So my next question, um, what do you think is um, some important things that we could learn if we're presuppositionalists primarily in our methodology, what are some things that we can learn from uh, folks in this more classical tradition? Because obviously it's not, there's one group over here, one group over here, and never shall the twain meet. I mean, there's obviously yeah. some crossover, some important, uh, useful things that we can grab from the different um, traditions. Um, what, in your estimation, are some important things that presuppositionalists should be paying attention to uh, with regards to our classical brothers? Yeah, that's a great question, and and I'm very much in favor of saying what can what can we agree on? How can we learn from from one another? Uh, and try and try and you know not not overstate the differences. There are, I think, some real substantive differences. Um, in terms of what we can learn, I think um, many classical apologists are, are very um, adept at philosophical thinking. Okay, mm -hmm. they, they're, they're familiar with the philosophical literature, they can engage in philosophy at a fairly high level. So someone like William Lane Craig, even though I, I have my differences with him theologically for sure, and in some philosophical issues as well. He's a, he's a first-ranked philosopher, doing some really good work, very rigorous work, and and, and engaging at a scholarly level. And uh, I, and I think that that in itself is is commendable. And I hope that presuppositionalists will aspire to do the same kind of um, uh, rigorous philosophical work in in defense of their views. Um, I think that some of the classical arguments for the existence of God are sound arguments. Now, I know that sets me apart from some, um, some other presuppositionalists who want to draw sharp lines between what they understand to be the transcendental argument and then other theistic arguments. Uh, that's not a position I take. My, my view is that if a, if a theistic argument is, is sound, if it has uh, true premises and the conclusion follows from the premises, then, then it's a serviceable argument. Uh, some are more useful than others, but I think, for example, that uh, there are versions of the ontological argument that are sound arguments. I, I don't tend to use them in apologetics, but I think that there's, there's nothing um, logically wrong with the arguments. I think that there are versions of the cosmological argument that are are quite respectable uh, versions based on the principle of sufficient reason. Um, there are teleological arguments. The fine-tuning argument, I think, has has a lot of um, uh, weight to it. And uh, actually, the more we discover about the, the scientific nature of the universe, the stronger the the design argument becomes. So. This is this is an area where I think presuppositionalists and classical apologists can say, look, there are some arguments that we can we can we can use together. Now, how you actually deploy those arguments may may differ a little bit, or some of the assumptions, uh, particularly the epistemological assumptions behind these arguments. Uh, there's going to be some differences there, and on the historical side as well. You know, um, the, if you are a presuppositionalist like me who 
who thinks that there is a place for historical apologetics. I think Van Til thought that there was a place for historical yep. apologetics, uh, as long as it was done in, in the right way with a sort of presuppositional sensitivity to it. Mm. There is a wealth of historical evidence. Why not, why not use that? Why not appeal to that? Why not point to uh, documentation that we have from the first century supporting the claims of the, of the New Testament, supporting um, uh, what was going on there in the, in the founding of the Christian church. There are some really good arguments to be made there, and it's tended to be the, the classical and the evidentialist apologists who have done the, the hard scholarly work there. And presuppositionists, I think, should say, thank you. We're not, gonna, we're, we're not taking everything that you're selling, but um, certainly there can be some crossover here. Uh, very good, very good. Um, uh, with regards to, uh, well, basically what you're saying then, and this is, I think there's an important point to keep in mind because there's so much, mis so many misconceptions of what presuppositionalism is, is that a lot of people will think, okay, if I'm a presuppositionalist, I can't use all these other cool arguments that everyone talks about, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so, but I like these arguments, so I don't want to be presuppositional because I feel like I'm limited. Um, so basically what you're saying um, being a presuppositionalist does not prohibit you from using some of the more traditional arguments. If they're valid, they have use, um, and you could incorporate them within your apologetic encounters um, while doing it within a consistently presuppositional framework. Is that pretty much what you're saying? Yeah, that, that's basically my position. That, that I, may, I make a distinction between the arguments that people might use mm -hmm. and the methodology that is driving those arguments and that is going to condition how those arguments are, are deployed. Right. So whereas um, someone like R.C. Sproul and myself might agree on a particular argument, maybe there's a version of the cosmological argument that we, we, mm -hmm. we both endorse, in terms of the underlying epistemology by which we justify that argument and uh, some of the presuppositional considerations that we are going to be taking into account when we're using those arguments with, with people who doubt the existence of God or claim to doubt the existence of God, yeah. there's going to be some methodological differences there. Um, uh, and a lot of it, a lot of this actually, I think, is, is, is background, going on in the background. Um, as I say, it's a lot of it has to do with the epistemological assumptions by which we justify the arguments and uh, how we employ them and uh, deploy them in practice. Right, and I, I and I, I I like how you said that it's in the background because practically speaking, just looking, if you were to walk in on a presuppositionalist talking to an unbeliever, or you walk in um, on a classicalist talking to an unbeliever, uh, there are many cases where they will be saying many of the same things while having different presuppositions with how to frame those things. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. So, um, uh, so there are there are there's important crossover. Um, it's not just you only can use the transcendental argument, or you only can use. I love the cosmological argument. I people who know me, I'm a, a presuppositionalist, but I've I've sat down with an unbeliever and wrote out the Kalam cosmological argument on a napkin, like it was part yeah. of our discussion and it was useful. Um, but of course, within that that context, which I think is very important. Yeah. Um, so my next question would be, what do you think is the most compelling and effective argument used by those within the classical tradition? So you have the theistic proofs. What, in your estimation, has been the most best utilized uh, and, and has been most effective in the ongoing discussion between believers and unbelievers, more specifically from that classical uh, bent? I, I tend to think, uh, 
I, my views on this may have shifted over time, but I tend to think that the, the moral argument, the argument from morality, okay. is the one that has um, the best uh, sort of psychological force to it. Right. Uh, you and I, it seems, agree that there are, there are good versions of cosmological argument. Um, I think if you're philosophically minded, there are some very interesting versions of the ontological argument. But for your, your average punter in the street, uh, these, these seem very, very abstract. They seem um, highly metaphysical, and they don't seem to have the kind of impact that the, the moral argument does, because the moral argument starts with the premise that there are objective moral values, and you know, in our day and age, sometimes you've, you've even got to argue that point. You've got to you know, draw out some intuitions, some basic intuitions that people have about morality. But um, people are invested in, in moral claims in a way they aren't necessarily invested in certain metaphysical claims like every, every event has a cause or that everything, there's a sufficient reason for every contingent fact or something along those lines. Whereas morality, of course, is the, is the bread and butter of everyday life. You, you go mm -hmm. onto social media, you read the news, everybody's making moral claims. And right there, you've got a foothold for a kind of argument that if you're going to make these objective moral claims, you better have a worldview that can pay the bills, a worldview that can can account for these moral norms. A worldview that pays the bills. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good one. Very good. That was a little nifty little thing there. Um, what I think is an important thing too, in what you just said, the moral argument. I agree, uh, and even Doctor Doctor Craig has been asked this. What does he think? What is his favorite argument? Uh, mm. His favorite argument is the cosmological argument. Yeah. But, uh, he thinks because the moral argument deals with issues that relate so much more to the everyday person, it tends to be more persuasive on that practical level. Uh, yeah. but there is a difference, I think, um, in the arguments you would use with the everyday person that might resonate very much with a moral argument and an argument that you would use within a formal debate or in a YouTube interaction or people who are kind of in the thick of these sorts of discussions. Uh, you might want to use a different argument because given that context, it might be more useful. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Uh, just to speak from personal experience, and the, the, there's always, you know, you've got to be careful with anecdotal evidence. But I, I know several people who, who were atheists mm -hmm. and abandoned their atheism on the basis of the moral argument. I don't know anyone who abandoned their atheism on the basis of a co cosmological argument. Well, maybe, maybe one person. I think maybe uh, Ed Fazer. Uh, Okay. I think it was it was sort of Aristotelian Thomism that persuaded him, but but um, how representative that is is, is another question. I, it's much more common, I think, to find people who have been persuaded by the moral argument um, mm. uh, in, in practice. So that just tells you something about the, the effectiveness and the impact that that argument can have. Mm. Very good. Now. Um in my interview yesterday with uh, Dr. Ross and Dr. Lyle on the topic of um, young earth and old earth creationism, uh, Dr. Ross had said something that seemed to give the indication, and it's he's not the first person that I heard. Um, by the way, the, the discussion was excellent. So those who haven't uh, listened to it, um, it's a very lively discussion, uh, kind of an open discussion. So it was very uh, quick moving. Um, and so it's very uh, entertaining <laughs> as well as educational. Um, and I didn't want to veer off too much off the, the main topic, but we got into very briefly an issue of methodology in which Dr. Ross 
suggested that sometimes he can be a presuppositionalist and then other times he could be an evidentialist. And so you can kind of, mm. as the situation calls for it, you can kind of jump in and out of these methodologies. So, so I often hear evidential and classical apologists, even well-known ones, uh, Hugh Ross and others as well, express their appreciation or derision uh, for the presuppositional approach and often suggest that it can be useful at times. So they'll say something to the effect as, well, if I'm speaking with so-and-so, then I would use an evidential or classical approach. But if I'm speaking with so-and-so, then I would use a, uh, a presuppositional approach. So my question for you is, do you think it is legitimate to jump in and out of different apologetic methodologies? If so, why? And if not, where's the, where is where is the inconsistency in doing something like that? As right. Well, if we're actually talking about methodologies, so if we're talking about presuppositionalism as opposed to evidentialism, mm -hmm. then no, I, I don't think you can just jump into one method in one situation and another adopt another method uh, methodology in another situation. That's kind of like saying, you know, when I when I pastor one church, I'm a I'm a pedo Baptist, and when I pastor another church, I'm a credo Baptist. You know. Um, <laughs> There's there's some underlying theological principles here which are, are are not negotiable in the sense that if if they're true then they apply everywhere, or you know someone saying um, you know I'm I'm a sometimes I'm a Presbyterian and sometimes I'm a Congregationalist. Uh, no, there have to be some convictions here, and those convictions ought to apply in in every circumstance. Obviously, Presbyterianism in North America might look different than Presbyterianism in South Korea, but still there's there's an underlying uh, um, doctrine uh, that, it, that is driving things. And, and it's the same with methodology. Um, if someone says, sometimes I take a presuppositional approach, sometimes I take an evidentialist approach, probably what they're talking about is the, is the arguments, the specific arguments that they're using in the situation. So sometimes with a presuppositional approach, maybe they're, they're arguing that uh, moral claims presuppose God or uh, reason or human knowledge presupposes God. So they're operating at a more philosophical level. Yeah. And then when they say, sometimes I'm an evidentialist, they're saying, well, sometimes I'm talking about the evidence of um, biological design, irreducible complexity, yeah. fine tuning in the universe or historical evidence for the resurrection. But they're not really talking about methodologies there, rather talking about what is the specific argument or the uh, the kind, the the content of the argument that I'm making in that particular circumstance, the methodology, I think, has to do with your underlying epistemology. That is, mm -hmm. your theory of knowledge, how we know what we know, how we make judgments about truth claims, how we interpret evidence. All of that is going to drive your methodology, and I I would say that the fundamental divide between a presuppositional approach and a, uh, and a, a classical evidential approach mm -hmm. has to do with whether your apologetics needs to be grounded in a, in a neutral epistemology or a Christian epistemology. Mm -hmm. I, I'm gonna camp out on that distinction, on whether when we engage in apologetics, we're doing it on, on a self-consciously Christian basis where we're, we're appealing to a biblical epistemology that includes both natural and special revelation mm -hmm. or whether we are uh, adopting a sort of pared down uh, lowest common denominator epistemology where you're only allowed to appeal to things that the unbeliever is going to, to grant so uh, yeah. reason um, whatever secular historians uh, whatever principles or standards they apply, whatever scientists currently uh, accept. 
Um, that's that's the difference. It's the underlying epistemology. Okay, very good. And we'll get into that um, in just a bit in a little more detail. My last question uh, with regards to the classical approach, and then we'll move on to the presuppositional. Uh, which classical apologist has had the most influence upon your thinking as a presuppositionalist? Or you, you, I would imagine you're not only influenced by the presuppositional tradition. Uh, what uh, classical apologist do you think has influenced your thinking? That's a that's an interesting question, <laughs> and it's a pretty tough one. Okay. Um, if in terms of my own journey into apologetics, I would have to say that Norman Geisler was mm. a significant influence, which probably surprises a lot of people it even surprises me when i find myself saying it because you know as as i developed theologically i i, I realized i had a lot of differences with dr geisler but when i was first getting into apologetics his some of his books were very helpful to me in just introducing me to the world of philosophy the world of theistic arguments the world of um uh, defending defending the integrity of the Bible. You know, Geisler's, a lot of Geisler's material on defending the inspiration mm -hmm. and inerrancy of the Bible was yeah. just invaluable to me. So, um, you know, I have to give credit where, where credit is due, although I, I took a different course once I was introduced to the works of Van Til, Barnson, Frame. Um, uh, Geisler sort of got me on the apologetic ladder uh, as well as maybe Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict, you know, um, that was useful to me early on. So, yeah, I, I give credit for that. Um, now, now, you just said something. Uh, you said it was useful early on. Do you still find those books useful uh, for someone who's fully adopted a presuppositional approach? Uh, what kind of book would you suggest to someone uh, from Norman Geisler, for example, that might be useful in the precepts uh, arsenal? Yeah. Um, I have to say that I, I rarely refer to Geisler's works now. And there, there are a number of reasons for that. Right. Um, none of which really reflect in any particularly bad way, but sure. rather I just don't find them useful because they're based on a methodology and, and actually a, a philosophy, um, a, a Thomistic philosophy that right. I don't adopt. Um, it just so happens, actually, I've been I'm delving into a Geisler book earlier today um, because I'm, I'm writing up something about a particular criticism of presuppositionalism that I, I want to say something about. And so often when I when I want to hear again, remind myself, what, what is it that classical apologists have uh, a problem with in presuppositionalism? I will go to to Geisler. I'll go to, to R.C. Sproul's book, Classical Apologetics. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, no, I, I wouldn't say that Geiser's works are ones that I pull off the shelf, although he has edited some volumes again on, on scripture and he was, he was instrumental, of course, in the uh, drafting of the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, which is, I think, is a, an excellent uh, resource. So maybe more on the, on the, on the biblical uh, inspiration and inerrancy side of things than on classical apologetics proper, whether that be arguments for the existence of God. Mm. You know, even, even theistic arguments, I would say that, that uh, William Lane Craig's versions of the cosmological arguments are, are more robust than, than Geisler's, which I, I feel are a little dated now. Sure. All right. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, let's shift then now to the presuppositional approach. 
Um, what is the presuppositional apologetic approach and why is it called presuppositional? Okay, so it's, I'll answer the second question first. So this, as the term itself indicates, presuppositionalism is a method that focuses on the presuppositions of both the believer and the unbeliever. By presuppositions, we, we roughly mean foundational assumptions about ultimate reality and ultimate authority. Okay. Uh, perhaps the more common word or the word that's help, more helpful for people to understand now is to talk about worldview. So a worldview is, is the basic framework that you bring to, to interpreting your experiences of the world, interpreting evidences, and determining how you're going to respond to those. So your, your worldview, we can think of as a network of presuppositions about, about God, about the nature of the universe, about um, truth claims, criteria for judging truth claims, mm -hmm. uh, sources of authority, human nature, presuppositions about what kind of beings we are. All of these together serve as a person's worldview. And what the presuppositional approach fundamentally tries to do is to lay side by side the Christian worldview and the unbeliever's worldview. And of course, there can be many different forms of unbelieving worldview. There are, there are religious kinds like Islam. There are secular kinds like naturalism. But to, to, to lay out the, these two competing worldviews and to do an internal comparison and critique of them and to ask which of these worldviews can make sense of the things that all of us take for granted. Believers and unbelievers, in order to communicate, in order to reason together, of course, we're all, we, we recognize we're all living in the same world. We have to talk to each other. We have to reason with each other. But the presuppositionalist is asking a pretty deep question, which set of presuppositions, which worldview can, can make sense of, can account for, can, to use the expression I used earlier, pay the bills for uh, our ability to reason, to make moral judgments, to know things about the world. And so what, it, what presuppositionalism avoids, and this may be getting into some of the questions you're going to ask later on, but what presuppositionalism tries to avoid is the idea that there's some sort of neutral stance that you can take, some sort of worldview independent vantage point that you can use to, as it were, stand above every worldview and make these neutral um, uh, judgments about which worldview is true, which worldview is rational. Rather, we're recognizing that reason itself, reason itself needs a worldview to, uh, to account for it. And we're asking which, which worldview actually does make sense of reason itself. Mm. Um, very good. And uh, you passed. <laughs> you, defined, you defined it correctly. Very good. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I was going to lose my job. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's right. I was grading you. Um, now, uh, when we talk about, uh, you know, presuppositional methodology, there, there are obviously some differences within that uh, scope. And I think this is one of the reasons, uh, well, one of the reasons why uh, Dr. Oliphant uh, one, doesn't like presuppositional uh, terminology, he wanted to kind of narrow it down to what he calls covenantal apologetics, which um, I actually very much do appreciate what he's trying to do there, um, because presuppositional nomenclature has some ambiguity to it. Um, but when we hear presuppositionalism, a lot of people think, well, Van Til and Bonson. Um, yeah. What shades of presuppositionalism 
um, do you see that go beyond Avantil and Bonson? Maybe maybe explain what's the difference, for example, between someone like Avantil and John Frame or right. Jordan Clark. What what are some differences there? You don't have to go into a whole. I mean that that's a large topic, but what are some yeah. key differences between the different camps within presuppositionalism? Yeah, you know, presuppositionalism as a term itself is 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 useful in some contexts, but as you suggest, it's it, it's certainly limited, and it can cover a lot of different approaches. Where actually there's some quite substantial differences between them. To give right. just one example, Gordon Clark has been categorized as a presuppositionalist as well, and there's a sense in which both Van Til and Clark were presuppositionalist in that they focused on critiquing the presuppositions of the unbeliever, but the methodology they used for that critique was very different. For, for Clark, it was a strict uh, test of logical consistency. Is do, Does the unbeliever system um, satisfy the laws of logic, specifically the law of non-contradiction? Whereas, whereas Van Til's approach, I think, was more sophisticated and more nuanced, and it was a transcendental presuppositionalism. At least that's, that's how I tend to qualify it. Uh, Van Til's approach was a presuppositionalism that engaged in a transcendental critique, asking whether the unbeliever's presuppositions can account for reason or whether they're actually self-defeating. In other words, if you follow the unbeliever's presuppositions through to their uh, logical consequences, they would render it impossible for us to, to reason at all. That's a different kind of critique than the one that, that Clark was offering. Mm. And then within the broader camp of what you might call Vantillian presuppositionalism, you've got someone like uh, Greg Barnson, who uh, certainly gave the impression that he was just following Van Til and not deviating from, from Van Til one whit. Certainly if you read his book, um, uh, Van Til's Apologetic Readings and Analysis, you'd come away saying, Barnson's just basically rubber stamping what Van Til said. I think there are actually some practical differences um, or at least some, some different emphases that you find in Barnson's approach. But mm -hmm. it's fair to say that, that Barnson's approach was much more uh, strictly following Van Til's explicit terminology and um, uh, examples um, in his approach. Uh, then you have uh, someone like John Frame, also a, stand, uh, a, uh, a student of Van Til. And I would say that, that Frame certainly is a, a Van Tilian presuppositionalist mm -hmm. because the core convictions, the core theological and philosophical convictions that drove Van Til's approach also drive Frame's approach, namely that our epistemology needs to be grounded in Reformed theology. In other words, we start with Reformed theology, we ask what are the epistemological implications of that, and our methodology has to flow out of that. Right. Um, also, the idea that, that, that you, there's no neutral starting point, there's no neutral vantage point, and the, the denial of intellectual autonomy, that um, there's any autonomous standards that we can use to judge between worldviews. Again, Frame is very, very clear about that, and I would say that that puts him clearly in, in the Vantillian camp, although he articulates more uh, points of difference with Van Til than someone like Barnson in that um, frame is more open to other theistic arguments. Uh, he's less critical, although still critical, but less critical of classical apologetics and um, Aquinas and, and so forth. Um, and then you have someone like Scott Oliphant, again, who I think is is uh, closer to Van Til or, or is articulating less 
disagreements with with Van Til. So mm -hmm. there, there there is a spectrum there. And with with someone like Dr. Oliphant, uh, you have a more self-consciously theological um, and uh, being driven by a biblical theology of of covenants. Hence hence the term covenantal apologetics. Mm -hmm. I think what that's useful for is for bringing out the underlying theological convictions behind presuppositionalism. Mm -hmm. But again, covenantal apologetics, uh, if, you, if you understand all that's packed into that, it makes sense. But in itself, it's not obvious how that distinguishes it from a, a mm -hmm. classical approach. Mm -hmm. After all, someone like R.C. Sproul was reformed, reformed covenant theologian. So is his, is his approach not covenantal? Well, Dr. Oliphant would, would argue with whether it's consistently covenantal, sure. um, and that's where we find ourselves in this debate. All right, very good. Um, now, I, I, uh, where, where would you align yourself? Uh, are you are more closer to a frame? I'm in exactly the right spot. I've got, I've got exactly <laughs> right. I've avoided, avoided all the problems of all the other views. Now, um, there's a fair question. Uh, I, I would locate myself somewhere between frame and Barnson. Okay. In that, um, I I agree with Dr. Frame that the tr the transcendental argument isn't the only theistic argument that a presuppositionalist ought to use. So, uh, Bunsen certainly gave the impression that it's it's the transcendental argument or bust. Uh, that that there's just one kind of argument, and maybe it can be applied in different ways, but it it has to be the transcendental argument. Mm -hmm. I agree with Frame that there are other theistic arguments that uh, are, are sound arguments, they're cogent, they're appropriate to use in certain situations. Where I, where I differ with Dr. Frame is that he thinks that there's nothing particularly distinctive about the transcendental argument. In other words, he sees a category of theistic arguments of which the transcendental argument is one, and then there are others that go alongside it. And, and he has said that he thinks that the transcendental argument needs to be supplemented by more traditional um, kinds of theistic arguments. Yeah. I think there is something unique and distinctive about the transcendental argument. I think the transcendental argument is getting something much deeper than the other theistic arguments. So I think it has a special place as sort of the, the centerpiece of a presuppositional approach. Mm -hmm. But... Um, it doesn't have to be the the only arrow in our quiver. Mm. So if you were to kind of capture then, I mean, I kind of entitled this, um, is there really a big difference between the classical approach and the presuppositional approach? Um, what is the defining feature? As I mentioned before, I, uh, we, I was uh, talking with a, a common acquaintance. Um, I wouldn't know if he's your friend or not, but uh, uh, a good friend, uh, Guillaume Bignon, uh, who is exploring these issues. Um, I told him we're friends. You, you I can okay. be public about that. We're friends. All right, All right cool. Um, uh, I don't know if you were if it was gonna you know besmirch your your um, your reputation being uh, French. Unless you know something about him that I don't. Uh, well, he's French, so I didn't like know. It, oh well, there's that. Uh, yeah, that's know, right. But, um, but uh, he he asked a really good question, and I, I'm not quoting him directly, but um, he, he seemed to think that when the presuppositionalist gives the argument. Uh, that presuppositionalists tend to give a transcendental argument when asked to fill in the details of, of of what we're trying to say you're basically doing pretty much what the classical apologist is doing so he, he's having difficulty seeing any significant difference that's worth making a hullabaloo about 
Um, so what do you think? What's, what is the, is there a defining difference between the methodologies that you would think that the presuppositionalist is doing something different and uniquely so? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think, I think there is a, there is a, a real substantive difference. And again, it has to do with the, the authority that you're ultimately appealing to. So in the classical approach, basically, uh, scripture needs to be left out. Scripture needs to be left to one side because you're not allowed to appeal to special revelation. You're only supposed to appeal to natural revelation. This is exactly what uh, R.C. Sproul says in the book, Classical Apologetics. He says, we start, we start with natural revelation alone. We make our theistic arguments. Uh, and then in the second stage, we start bringing in historical evidence. We make the case for the Bible. And actually the reality is that in the classical approach, uh, the, the Bible isn't treated as supernatural revelation at all. At most, it's treated as, as a historical document alongside other ancient historical documents. And it's subjected to the, the standards, the, the criteria that secular historians would apply to any other document. The presuppositionalist is going to object to that by saying we, we mustn't adopt uh, and rubber stamp these secular standards, whether it's secular standards of reason or philosophical argumentation or historical evaluation. Rather, the presuppositionalist will say, we, we are going to argue from natural and special revelation together at the outset. This is what Van Til called treating Christianity as a unit. That is, we take the Christian worldview as an integrated unit where there's both natural and special revelation. And we argue that that integrated worldview is the only one that can make sense ultimately of our experience and our, our ability to reason about the world. So it's not as though we say we're, go we're going to adopt some neutral standards of reason and experience and see where we can build up from there. Rather, we're going to say, look, here is here is the Christian worldview. Let me let me explain to you what this Christian worldview is. Now compare it with whatever your worldview is, a uh, naturalistic worldview, uh, an Islamic worldview, whatever it might be. Let's consider each of these, do an internal critique of each one and ask which one can actually account for the things that both of us are taking for granted. Both of us are taking for granted our ability to reason. But when you take that stance, you're not treating reason as a sort of independent worldview neutral standard. Or we're not saying that our 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 experiences are self-validating or that they, they, um, uh, they interpret themselves. We're not saying that there's this evidence or these facts that can adjudicate in some independent way between worldviews. Rather, we're asking which, which worldview allows us to speak intelligibly about reason, to speak intelligibly about evidence for truth claims uh, and so on. So we're not adopting what I call the pretense of neutrality. The pretense of neutrality is where you say, look, we, we've got to start with some neutral common ground. We've got to find something that we can all agree on that doesn't have any theological uh, presuppositions or religious presuppositions, that it really is a neutral starting point, And that's the basis on which we're going to settle this, this worldview de debate. Rather, I'm going to say, look, there is no neutral ground. Um, but rather, the ground that we are standing on the whole time, both the believer and the unbeliever, that is that is Christian ground. You may not realize it, the unbeliever may not accept that, but that's part of my job as an apologist 
to show that the common ground that we're standing on, reason, truth, moral norms, um, the reliability of sense experience, all of these things are actually resting upon the, the reality of a Christian worldview, the truthfulness mm -hmm. of a Christian worldview. All right, I wanna move, I wanna ask my last question and then we'll move on to some audience questions. I know we're, we're on a, a, a tight, I wanna keep it to an hour to respect your time. Um, well, it, for my first question here, you can answer with a yes or no, and I know that there's a qualification that's needed, but uh, but it's gonna it's gonna help me move on to my next question, which I really want to get to. Okay. Okay. So, um, does presuppositionalism necessarily presuppose a re, pre presuppose a reformed theology? Yes. Okay. Great. So my it is an, an interesting thing I was thinking that if someone wanted to refute presuppositionalism. If presuppositional apologetics necessarily presupposes Reformed theology, is the presuppositional method refuted if Reformed theology is refuted? I, I do think a presuppositional methodology stands or falls with a Reformed theology. So, okay. so if someone were to refute Reformed theology, then presuppositionalism would fall with it. But that's, that's what philosophers call a, a counter-possible. Okay. okay, where where the, the, the premise of it, you're only granting for the sake of argument, but I, yeah. I don't think it could actually be done. So yeah. it's, it's, it's like it's like saying, you know, if 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 uh, if five were greater than seven, would five also be greater <laughs> yeah. than six? Okay. Uh, well, maybe. But um, so, I, I, you know, it, in a sort of hypothetical sense, I think if if you could reform um, refute reform theology, then presupposition would fall with it. But that's something I'm quite happy to live with because I think that, that there's no good refutation of reform theology. That's right. that's right. So so now I have I have an argument here. So that when we're saying, for example, uh, when we're saying that Christianity provides the preconditions for intelligibility, knowledge, you know, Christianity is true by the impossibility of the contrary, and of course we'd have to work that out. What we're really saying as presuppositionalists is that reformed Christianity, Christianity as understood uh, within the reformed understanding provides those necessary preconditions because it presupposes our doctrine of God, our doctrine of man, the necessity of revelation along the lines that the reformed uh, apologist would understand it. So uh, what do you think of this deductive argument that I've just, just shot off the top of my head here? Uh, premise one, if knowledge is possible, then reformed Christianity is true. Premise two, knowledge is possible, conclusion, therefore Reformed Christianity is true. So basically, how do you know Reformed theology is true? By the impossibility of the contrary. Could someone make a transcendental argument for Reformed theology? Sure. Oh, yeah, in principle. I mean, what you've just articulated there is a, is a logically valid argument, if I followed it. But of course, it's the first premise that's bearing all the weight there. The second premise, knowledge is possible. Yeah, okay, we'll grant that, except he's sure. you know, some crazy skeptic. Um, so <laughs> the first there, one... You know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know they're out there. Uh, that's right. Doesn't mean they're not crazy, though. That's, um, that's right. <laughs> um, so the first premise is, you know, if, if knowledge is possible, then, then Reformed Christianity is true. Now, th that sounds... Uh, I think to a lot of people, incredibly implausible, if not if not quite quite arrogant. Right. Um, but the way the way that I would parse that is, if if knowledge is possible, then the most theologically consistent form of Christianity is true. Mm. Okay, in other words, 
the presuppositionalist is going to argue that that there are theistic preconditions of, of knowledge. That is, for, for us to know anything about the world, there has to be a personal God, creator God, and that God has to be absolute in the sense of not, not dependent on anything outside of himself, not qualified by anything. So, um, and this is how I, I've articulated versions of the transcendental argument in, in some of my written materials and my lectures, that what, what knowledge presupposes is a personal absolute God. I think that captures a lot of what Van Til is, is getting at. Um, but I would say that once you grant that there's a personal absolute God, you're, you're basically, you've, you've basically accepted the reformed doctrine of God. Because on, on any non-reformed doctrine of God, God's knowledge and plans and understanding of the world is dependent on contingencies beyond his control, such as libertarian free will choices. Mm -hmm. okay. So if, if God is to be absolutely self-sufficient and independent, uh, to use the technical term, a say, uh, of of himself, uh, not dependent on anything outside of himself, then I think that the reformed doctrine of God is the only consistent uh, version of or understanding of God that, that's consistent with that that uh, self sufficiency of God. And this is this is a point that Van Til banged on about repeatedly um, mm -hmm. that that uh, in order to have a God who is who who um, in order to have a universe that is truly unified and intelligible with no brute contingencies, no elements of chance that are beyond God's control that don't fit into the big picture. You must have an absolutely sovereign God, a God who, to use the language of the Westminster Confession, who, who, who uh, ordains all things uh, according to the counsel of his his will, you know, whatsoever comes to pass. Um, so that that's the connection. Now, it, of course, there's more to reform theology than that. Uh, you've got uh, Trinitarian theology, you've got the doctrine of the atonement, you've got certain understanding of scripture. Mm -hmm. um, so there's more argument that needs to be put in there to, to flesh things out. Sure. But what I'm saying here is really nothing other than what, what Reformed theologians have been saying uh, for a long time, is that Reformed theology is um, Reformed Christianity isn't the only version of Christianity. No one's making that claim. Like, if you're not Reformed, you're not a Christian. That, that's not the claim. But the claim is that Reformed Christianity is the most consistent outworking of the core convictions of the Christian faith, whether that's the nature of God, um, the fallenness of man, the doctrine of revelation, so forth. All right, very good. Um, that's super helpful, by the way. Um, now, I want to get to some of the questions because we don't have a lot of time. So we're going to go through this quickly, but you can, I do apologize that people have actually some pretty interesting questions, but we won't have time to go uh, through them. Um, so let's just take a couple and you can answer as quickly and succinctly as you think necessary. But of course, feel free to expand if you think that's necessary as well. So here's a question. In The Lord of Non-Contradiction, Dr. Anderson talks about dialethism, uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right, and paraconsistent logic. Does dialetheism or fuzzy logic pose a problem for classical logic? Okay, so uh, I'll probably need to explain a little bit of the background to that. So in this in this paper, uh, The Lord of Non-Contradiction, um, I and my co-author, Dr. Greg Welty, make the argument that the laws of logic presuppose the existence of God. So if you accept that there are laws of logic, then... Uh, 
you should accept the existence of God because you need the um, existence of God to to explain the existence of the laws of logic. That's this argument in a, in a, in a nutshell. Um, and we use as examples of laws of logic, the three classical laws of logic that were laid out most famously by Aristotle, law of non-contradiction, the law of identity, and law of excluded middle. Now, modern logics or mod modern philosophies of logic have challenged what's called classical logic. Cl basically, classical logic is any logic that accepts the law of non-contradiction. There are logical systems, and this comes as a surprise to a lot of people. They think, how could any system that rejects the law of non-contradiction actually be a logical system? Well, there are, there are ways of, of modifying things so that you don't end up with completely crazy results. And these are called non-classical logics, um, dialetheism, is the view that there can be true contradictions or that there can be statements that are both true and false. And it's a minority view. The question is, uh, can you escape this argument by jumping into non-classical logic? You say, well, your argument assumes classical logic. And actually we address this, uh, I can't remember if it's in the main text or in a footnote, but we basically say, our argument doesn't depend on any particular laws of logic. It only depends on there being some laws of logic. To be more precise, that there are some necessary truths, some things that are true that could not have been false. Mm -hmm. And uh, pretty much any system of logic, just in virtue of being a system of logic, has to have laws. It has to have some necessary principles or rules by which you can infer certain things. Otherwise, it's not really a system of logic. So as long as someone grants that there are some laws of logic that that do not have exceptions, that, that are necessary principles of inference, then we're up and running. Because right there, you've, you've granted that there are some necessary truths. And from that, we argue that if there are truths, necessary truths, they have to exist in a, in a necessarily existent mind, namely the mind of God. Mm. So right. I, I hope that is a helpful answer to the question. Very good. Next question here, Dr. Anderson, what are your thoughts on reformed epistemology championed by Alvin Plantinga and continued with Dr. Tyler McNabb and Dr. Andrew Moon? My, my short answer to that is I'm, I'm in favor of reformed epistemology. I accept a version of reformed epistemology myself. There is a bit of confusion out there. Uh, some people think that reformed epistemology is an approach to apologetics and that it's a rival to presuppositionalism and classical uh, apologetics mm. and evidentialism. It's not. Reformed epistemology is, is an account of how we know that God exists. It's not an account of how we demonstrate the existence of God. Uh, now, it does have some implications for apologetics. Mm. Basically, it says you don't need to be able to prove God exists to know God exists. You, you can know God exists in a properly basic way. This is what Plantinger in particular argues that our knowledge of God isn't inferential, it isn't based on philosophical arguments, it isn't based on natural theology, but rather we know it immediately and intuitively on the basis of this, or, or through this faculty that Plantinger calls a sensus divinitatis, a uh, sense of deity, that we have an immediate sense that there is a God based on, well, a, a number of factors that can feed into that. Um, now that, uh, Plantinger is getting that from, from Calvin, and it's well established in, I think, in the reformed tradition, reformed epistemology in that technical sense that, that we can have an immediate natural knowledge of God. That is, I think, consistent with at least some versions of classical apologetics. 
And I think it's also consistent with some versions of presuppositional apologetics as well. I'm not going to claim it's consistent with every version, but certainly I think there's no necessary conflict between uh, the, the, the core thesis of reformed epistemology and uh, the presuppositional methodology that Van Til um, advocates. In fact, I think there's a, there's a harmony between the, the, the two. Mm -hmm. um, now, guys like Dr. McNabb, Dr. Moon, um, we have, I think, our theological and philosophical differences, but when it comes to this reformed epistemology model of, of how we have a natural knowledge of God, there's a, there's a lot of agreement. Mm, very good. Uh, here, I thought this was a good question here. Uh, do you think different personality types are drawn to presuppositionalism <laughs> as opposed to classical apologetics? <laughs> I think that there are certain personality types who are just drawn to apologetics, period. Uh, you know, there, there's a certain personality type that, that enjoys the cut and thrust of apologetics and, and argument. Um, I certainly think... I don't think I can make the case that certain personality types, and of course the idea of personality types is a little vague anyway. I mean, apparently I'm an INTJ, and I, I you know, I, I, I took the Myers-Briggs test, and apparently I'm an INTJ, and um, I can't remember what they all, they all stand for, and I don't read too much into it. But some people like to suggest that people with certain personality types are inclined to uh, reform theology over against non-reform theology or presuppositionalism over classical. I, I don't read too much into that. Um, I know I know presuppositionalists who are very extroverted and some who are very introverted. Some who who like uh, arguing and some who uh, don't like a confrontational approach. So no, there's 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 no. I don't see any particular connection. All right, that, that was a fun question here. Uh, uh, sort of a side question, uh, but still related. Uh, Tom Jump mentioned that Bertrand Russell never critiqued Rene Descartes' syllogism as begging the question. Is he right about that? Just to give you context, um, many presuppositionalists bring this up uh, when um, Tom Jump is arguing against presuppositionalists. He'll say, well, I could know something independent of your God. I know that I exist. I start with cogito ergo sum. And then the presuppositionalists will respond, well, that's begging the question. Bertrand Russell pointed that out. It's fallacious. You can't use it. Okay. And Tom Jump would say, no, it's not fallacious. He asked, what was the I? Not necessarily that it was circular reasoning. What, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. Um, so I, I don't think that Descartes' argument begs the question. Okay. So I don't, I don't think it's viciously circular. Uh, I actually think that the, the Cogito argument is a good argument so far as it goes in that it, it shows that there's something self-defeating about denying your own existence. Mm -hmm. And in order to de deny your existence, you have to exist. Uh, that seems quite obvious to me. Now, I know that there are certain postmodern types who want to question whether we even have a concept of an I, and you know there are materialists who deny the reality of the self and so forth. Um, but I think as far as a logical argument goes, um, if you just take it in, in, a, in a common sense uh, interpretation, it's, it's, it's a good argument for, for showing that it's self-defeating to deny your own existence. Now, when Tom says, if, if this is what he says, that therefore he knows something independent of God, well, that's a non sequitur. To, to, to claim that we know our own existence, uh, that doesn't show one way or another whether our knowing our own existence actually depends on the existence of God or not. That's still an open question. And what, what I've done in a few places, um, I have a blog post on this, for example, 
I've argued that there's actually a parallel, a kind of a parallel between Descartes' cogito argument and Van Til's transcendental argument. Uh, you can interpret Descartes' argument as a kind of transcendental argument, namely that your existence is a precondition of your knowledge. So, so uh, a necessary precondition of you knowing something is you existing. That's pretty obvious, I think. What Van Til does is he goes deeper and argues that not only is your existence a precondition, a necessary precondition of your knowing something, but God's existence at a far deeper level, a fundamental level, is a precondition of your knowing anything at all. And the argument from logic is actually one way of getting to that. Um, the argument that uh, if there are any truths, uh, then God must exist. Uh, those truths mm. must exist as divine thoughts. That's one way of getting at it. And that's really what the topic of our conversation was when I was um, having that dialogue with, with Tom. Um, I mean, we didn't get much further than, than trying to establish that there are such things as truths or true yeah. propositions. But if you follow the argument through, then you, you can argue that those true propositions depend on the existence of God. Mm. So simply saying, I can know something without God, actually that claim begs the question. To say, I can, I can just know something on the basis of cogito ergo sum, that doesn't prove anything at all about whether God is a deeper metaphysical precondition for the existence of truth, the existence of knowledge. Yeah. Um, well, there are so many other questions, but uh, we, you will be here forever if you took the time to answer them. And so I do know that you're on a tight schedule. Um, but I just want to thank Dr. Anderson for coming on. Those who still have questions, I think I'll stay on for a couple of minutes and try to address ones that are more generic and some of them that are geared towards myself. Uh, but this was an excellent discussion. As always, uh, everything you have to say is super helpful and useful. Uh, whether there's agreement or disagreement, I'm sure there's much to uh, to learn from, from this discussion. Thank you so much for coming on. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right. Well, um, that's it for Dr. Anderson. You can feel free to, uh, to click yourself off, or maybe I think I have to do that. Let me see here. All right. There we go. I'm waving. You could wave to me if you see my, I don't know if you could, there we go. Thank you so much. This was excellent. And uh, as I often say, I, I'm a listener of my own show because I, I learn uh, from these discussions and I like to re-listen to them. So I highly um, appreciate everything that uh, Dr. Anderson has said here. Um, well, uh, again, I know we often go a little longer, um, but uh, uh, Dr. Anderson was on a time schedule there. And so I'm going to try and take some of the questions that um, I think I'll be able to take. And then of course, skip the ones that um, are geared towards um, uh, Dr. Anderson, okay? Um, so let's see here, there's a question here. T-Jump seemed to imply that presuppositions couldn't be proved. Is that because he's defining presupposition presupposition differently than us? Um, well, I think um, Tom Jump is understanding a presupposition as an elementary assumption almost akin to an axiom. Now axioms by definition cannot be justified because to justify an axiom, you'd have to appeal to something more foundational than it. But you can't, you can't justify an axiom by appealing to something more fundamental because the axioms are the most fundamental element within, uh, within your intellectual framework. And so he would say something to the effect that presuppositions don't need to be justified because you can't justify them, they're presuppositions. Um, I think the difference is that if you're treating a presupposition sort of like an axiom and saying that by definition, they cannot be justified, what you're implicitly rejecting are transcendental arguments, because this is exactly what Van Til was trying to do. Van Til had an ultimate presupposition, but he didn't take them as unprovable axioms. He believed that they can be proven transcendentally, 
Okay. That is to say that if you have this ultimate starting point, you can demonstrate its truth, not merely by just assuming it, but, and not merely by appealing to something more fundamental than it, but rather you can demonstrate the truth of your ultimate presupposition by appealing to its transcendental necessity. Deny this presupposition and you have to affirm it in order to deny it. And so in that sense, uh, Van Til would take the route of demonstrating one's elementary fundamental presuppositions transcendentally. Um, the, the folks who, who are not aware of this will often treat presuppositions as simply axioms. And so you can't, you, these are just things you just presuppose and, and that's it. Um, so I think that's, that is an important difference uh, there. All right. Hope that helps. Uh, here's another question. Why do non-Christian forms of epistemology fail? Uh, well, when upon analysis, um, and again, I can't go into in detail here, but when you take a non-Christian epistemological perspective, it doesn't deliver on providing the necessary preconditions for knowledge. Now, again, how do I know that? Well, that's going to require some interaction with the folks who hold to those particular unbelieving epistemological uh, perspectives. Um, but we would argue that the Christian worldview provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience, the Christian epistemology, the metaphysic, all this taken together provide those preconditions. And of course, the unbeliever is going to say, well, my perspective provides those preconditions. And so there you're going to have the clash of worldviews. And so you're going to have to demonstrate that through internal worldview critique. And of course, that would take much more time than what we can get into right now. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Uh, one can easily make a transition discussion. Let's see here. What is your response to the unbeliever who says? What is your response? Response to those who would say that since the Bible is Okay, here we go. Uh, here's another question here. What is Dr. Anderson's response to those who would say that since the Bible doesn't say much about apologetics, we should use a more pragmatic approach instead of getting stuck on methodology? Well, I'm not going to speak for Dr. Anderson, but if someone were asking me that question, um, I would just disagree uh, that the Bible doesn't say much about apologetics. Now, again, the Bible is not an apologetics textbook, but there is a lot of examples of apologetics being used. There are principles in scripture that lay down uh, a theory of reality, a theory of knowledge, a theory of ethics, and how these things work together. So from the principles of scripture, we can derive a worldview system that I think we should be following faithfully as Christians. You know, understanding God is the ultimate um, is the kind of the, the source of our authority, uh, the authority within our worldview perspective. So the Bible does have much to say about that. Even, for example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which says to set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to give a reason for those who ask you for the reason for the hope that's in, uh, that's, that's in you. I think I misquoted that. But, um, but even that one passage, uh, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. You see, a lot of people who do apologetics will focus on the always be ready, but there's actually a method that, that there's there's an, a, a thing that precedes always being ready, and that is setting apart Christ as Lord uh, in your heart. What are the apologetic implications of that? Again, these are issues that we draw from Scripture, and we can derive a methodology that I think is grounded in Scripture, and that's why I'm a presuppositionalist. I believe it's a methodology that is that is taught in Scripture, not with all of the philosophical terminology and all the trappings of a modern-day discussion, but the principles uh, in seed form are definitely uh, definitely there, all right? Uh, that's a good question here. Let's see here. Is it okay? Okay. Now, again, I don't... Uh, uh, I'm not going to answer for Dr. Anderson here, but uh, how does Dr. Anderson view Brant Bosserman's Trinity and the vindication of the of Christian paradox? Last time I had Dr. Anderson on, he did express that he was very interested in what uh, Bosserman had to say. But again, folks can check out the book, 
uh, Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox. And I highly recommend, if you haven't watched it already, I've actually had Brant Bosterman on to talk about the Trinity and its relation to transcendental argument presuppositional methodology. It's a two-hour discussion, but worth every minute. We go into, well, he goes into a lot of details with regards to um, some interesting things with um, the necessity of God being triune. So you definitely want to check that uh, out. All right, let's see here. What is the best way we're going to get there? All right. Well, there are a lot of questions here. Um, I can't get to all of them, but I, I think I think this is a good place to stop right now. Uh, just real quick, uh, by way of uh, just a reminder of an announcement. Uh, again, July sixteenth, I'm having uh, Dr. Frank Turek on, um, and um, on July 29th, I'm having Greg Kokel on. So please stay tuned for those. And of course, there'll be some other episodes. Uh, maybe I'll do another Q and A uh, like I did last time. Um, a couple of days ago. So uh, once again, thank you so much for uh, listening. Let me get this off the screen here. There we go. There we go. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, again, if you have not subscribed to the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel, uh, please do so and click the notification button for upcoming interviews, discussions, Q&As, and things like that. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.